On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. everybody welcome to another episode of audio judo i'm matthew and i'm kyle how's everybody doing i'm doing good how are, you? how are you doing i'm doing all right i mean i guess i can't speak for everybody out there but i know that i personally am doing okay yeah i'm doing i'm doing pretty well i'm doing not not so shabby good moderately neato moderately not shabby i like yeah. that average average yeah nice uh, see, old business. Um, yeah. our uh, Patreon account is up and running. Ooh! So uh, we would love to have you guys go take a look around. Uh, it's a way uh, to support us financially a little bit, so we can give you the best possible experience. We listen to a lot of podcasts, and I'd like to believe that we have one of the better sounding ones. Uh, our show is engineered well. We use good equipment. Take pride in delivering the best possible work we can. So. If you'd like to throw some monetary encouragement our way, we would not be opposed to it. Uh, if you so choose, there are three levels or tiers uh, that provide different options, including bonus content, early access to episodes, discounts on merchandise, and at the highest level, an opportunity to co-host an episode of Audio Judo yeah. on a record of your choosing. Uh, whether if you are local, you might be welcomed into the, uh, the studio itself. You know, if you're not, then we'll just do it over the phone. Um, website is patreon.com forward slash audio judo, or you can go to our website at audiojudo.com and click on the Patreon link on the upper right hand side of the page, and it will take you right there. So poke around, and we hope you stick around. Yeah. Uh, just as a heads up, if you do, uh, if you do get the uh, the hosting, if you do pay for the hosting uh, tier. What is that called? The backstage pass tier? Yes. If you pay for the backstage pass tier, we do get to make fun of you as well as you making fun of us. Just just a fair warning. Oh, it's fair game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we it is open season when you uh you come on here with us. So Yeah, be prepared. If you pick a dumb album, we are gonna roast you. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh I did say discounts on merchandise. Speaking of merchandise, uh, our shop is also up and running. Oh yeah. If you want some Father's Day gifts or stuff like that, although this won't be airing. This will be airing well after Father's Day. So if you want some, if you want some Christmas Christmas gifts, gifts <laughs> some <laughs> Halloween gifts, Thanksgiving uh, gifts, Christmas gifts, you can also get there from our website. Just click on the shop link, and it will take you right there. And uh, we thank you for helping us out. Every little bit, yeah, helps. Uh, hey, Kyle. Hey, Matthew. Is the water warm enough? Oh yeah, it's warm enough. Shall we begin? I think we should begin. Because <laughs> uh, this week. Uh, yeah. We're talking about Prince. Specifically, we're talking about Purple Rain. Purple Rain. Probably the best known Prince album. I, I would argue that it's probably the best known Prince album. I'd say it's one of the most celebrated and critically acclaimed records of all time. Indeed. Uh, so I, I guess first, let's start down yeah. with this. What uh, What is your background with Prince here? 
How, how did you first hear Prince? I have, uh, how did I first hear Prince? I would say the first thing I probably heard was 1999. Okay. And stuff like that for, uh, I believe little red Corvettes on that same record. And I think it was right around that particular time that I started to take notice of Prince in any sort of fashion. Okay. But I wasn't like, I'm a huge Prince fan, <laughs> but it was like, Oh, that's Prince. That's pretty cool. That's an interesting sound. Yeah. It's uh, it was different for me, but I enjoyed it. What about you? So the first time I heard Prince would have been like somewhere between like 94, and 97 so about 10 12 years after this album came out oh so we're talking years uh 1982 oh, okay that's i mean we didn't have to talk years i'm just i'm just putting this in context three. uh thanks a lot i was i was about 12 years old okay and i remember this super distinctly for some reason i used to go visit uh my aunt and my two cousins uh, in salt lake city utah mm. and they live in this house that's way up a canyon it's about a 20 minute drive from the city up this little tiny winding road to get to where their house is. It's very beautiful up there. They had picked me up at my grandma's house. We were driving up there to spend the night. And I remember my cousin Lisa was in the front seat and we were listening to this mixtape that she had and Purple Rain came on and I was absolutely transfixed by it. I was like, what is this? And mm -hmm. she was kind of a, no offense, Lisa, if you're out there listening, but she was kind of a smart ass kid sometimes. And she was like... This is Purple Rain by Prince. It's a good song. I really like it. That's why it's on the end of this mixtape. Okay. And I just remember being like, wow, that's amazing. And we got done with it. And I was Why'd like, you have to get we... so snippy. Right? Yeah, she was always kind of like that. I think it was more her because I was the younger cousin. Okay. So uh, it got done. And I was like, can we listen to that again? And it was like, yeah, okay. So it's you only know, eight minutes it's, long, but it's, all right. It's a cassette. So you get to rewind right. it. You know, we're sitting there in the car in silence for about 45 seconds while the tape rewinds, you know, and try to start it. Not quite rewound all the way. Rewind a little bit more, start it up. And by that point, we get to their house, pull into the garage. And I'm like, can we finish listening to this? <laughs> wow. that So it it, uh, it really, for some reason, you know, I, like I said, you. I was like 11 or 12 years old. And then for some reason, it really spoke to me so much so that I, uh, and in researching this, I found out that I share something with uh, Tipper, Tipper Gore's daughter. At about that age, at about 12 or 13, I remember asking my mom for, I was like, get me any Prince album that has Purple Rain. Okay. So she got me, uh, it was, I can't remember the actual name of it now. It's his, It was his greatest hits cassette at the time, which it, I don't know if you've ever listened to some of the songs uh, by Prince. Yeah. Purple Rain. Of course. Uh yeah, probably not uh, very eye-opening for a 12-year-old boy for, from Utah. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> sure. Head is a great song, and so is uh, Sexy MF. Se Sexy MF is yeah. a great song. It's got two X's, though, right? It does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Makes it more sexy. Very, uh, very eye-opening. Uh, and we'll get to the Tipper Gore story here in a, sure, a little sure. bit while we're talking about the album. But uh, yeah. But it's, you know, this album... It appears on nearly every greatest records list oh, yeah. ever made. Won a host of awards, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Oh, yeah. Re regularly referred to as the best album of the let's, 1980s. You know what? Let's just jump right into that because I got a whole list of people who ranked this album. Okay, go ahead. Our favorite, Rolling Stone. Yep. Uh, ranked Purple Rain number two on its list of 100 best albums of the 1980s. And number 76 on its list of the 50 greatest albums of all time. Mm -hmm. Also Rolling Stone uh, top. Sorry, the 25 greatest soundtracks of all time, Purple Rain, was ranked second behind the Beatles' Help, 
which is a pretty good place to be in. Sure. Time included on their list of all-time 100 albums. Uh, album was ranked 18th on VH1's Greatest Rock and Roll Albums of All Time Countdown. Times again ranked Purple Rain at number 15 on its list of 100 best albums of all time. In 2007, the editors of Vanity Fair uh, labeled it the best rock, best soundtrack of all time. Also in 2007, Tempo Magazine named it the greatest album of the 1980s. 2008, Entertainment Weekly ranked Purple Rain at number one on their list of top 100 albums of the previous 25 years. 2008, the album was included in the 1001 albums You Must Hear Before You Die. 2009, it was included in Christ Smith's book of, of the 101 albums that changed pop music. 2012, Slant Magazine ranked the album at number two on its list of best albums of the 1980s. 2013, Entertainment Weekly also ranked the album as number two on their list of 100 greatest albums ever. Uh, Pitchfork regarded it as the best album of the 1980s, ranking it at number one on their list of 200 best albums of the 1980s. And Billboard's list of 92 excuse me billboard's list of all 92 diamond certified albums ranked from worst to best the critics take was purple rain was ranked number one Hmm. so that is out of all the best-selling albums of all time this is number one so what are you trying to say that it's a pretty damn good album Oh, okay yeah yeah that's a so when you mentioned that this was your choice for the next one we were Mm going to talk about uh part of me was a very concerned that there was no way that we could do it justice or cover all that this record means in one hour or whatever. I was petrified because it's such a legendary record that means so much to so many that I I was worried that we might embarrass ourselves, you know, more than we normally do. Obviously that's, I think that was a given, right? But such, you know, are the concerns of a music podcaster. So (laughs) I just, you had to dive in and then maybe be over your head and see what comes out. So you obviously remember the first time you heard this one, but my familiarity with Prince predates Purple Rain. But I do remember when I first uh, became aware of this record. So it was released in June of 1984. That was the same month that I turned 12. Uh, It was the summer of Ghostbusters. Um, Parts of my world were just starting to open up to me. I got my 10-speed bike for my 12th birthday, so I was able to go to movies with friends, you know, not with my parents. Girls were just becoming interesting to me, and my love affair with music and with baseball specifically were just starting to blossom. So these two things would intertwine this summer around this record, but more on that in the track-by-track when we get there. But anyway, the summer of 1984, in fact, this whole year, 1984, would be defined by the music that showed up that year. So I tried a little something different this time around. And besides listening to Purple Rain several times, which I did, Mm -hmm. I tried to immerse myself in the songs of 1984, thought it might be worthwhile to get a feel for stuff surrounding it. Here's a question, but it might be for another episode. But why the hell wasn't Slade a much bigger band than they ended up being? (laughs) Seriously, they're great. But that might be for another time. But why the hell weren't they bigger? Why did Rat get big? But but Slade didn't get. I think big. that's the title of an upcoming future episode. Why the hell weren't they bigger? Yeah, I think I'm just. just and a it's question. not. It's not about the time I visited that gay bathhouse. It's about a. Uh, <laughs> it's about what bands uh, weren't. They're fantastic musicians. They're. Uh, they should have been bigger, but they weren't. Should have been bigger. The story of. Story Kyle's life. The story <laughs> of CD Alley in New York City. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, the music that year. Just amazing. So here's a small sampling of the music that was released in 1984. 1984 by Van Halen, the Smiths' debut album, Bon Jovi's debut album, 
Rats Out of the Cellar, Run DMC's debut album, Private Dancer by Tina Turner, the biggest album of her career. Oh, that's a great album. Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, Victory by the Jackson 5. Also released this year was Thriller, the last single off the Thriller album, almost two full years after that album's release. Good Lord. Ride the Lightning by Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers' debut album, Unforgettable Fire by U2, and Like a Virgin by Madonna. So not mentioned on this list are hundreds of records that you would recognize and some that we all love. Also, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid was released in 1984. Oh. So this is a huge year. So to me, 1984, critical year in the history of music. All these genres coming together for the first time. Rap is in its infancy. Disco is mostly dead, but it has some remnants that are kicking around, which funk is kind of pulling in on the coattails of. Yeah. Hair metal is beginning. Metal is gaining traction. So it's a really unique year. Listening to all this music on random, you end up with For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica right before Borderline by Madonna. (laughs) Both hits in their respective genres, but still very weird. Yeah. So right in the middle of that amazing year comes the most amazing record of all of them, Purple Rain. And it was so much different than anything we had known before. The sounds were different. The lyrics were provocative. And I loved it. So I don't think that I had listened to the whole thing all the way through for a long time. But years, I'm sure. Yeah. Right? And what's so cool about it is that there's no gap for me. As I listened to this for research, every single song came back to me. All the lyrics, all the sounds. I remember how much this album was powered by MTV, courting controversy seemingly with every single that was released and utilizing controversy and attention to propel it forward, which he was excellent at. Oh, yeah. So trying to limit its exposure naturally had the reverse effect, and it was everywhere. And while Prince was a fairly big name before this was released, he was a household name by the end of the year because oh, yeah. of this record. This so, was definitely, he, he would have had a career without this album, but this was a superstardom. Absolutely. Career. So this was his sixth official release, mm-hmm. but his first with The Revolution. The first officially with the revolution. Official, yes, correct. So the, this is the first one credited for uh, Prince and the Revolution. Uh, it, in the liner notes, it contained the credits uh, produced, arranged, composed, and performed by Prince and the Revolution, uh, which I guess we should probably mention. The Revolution is made up of uh, Wendy Melvoin on guitar and vocals, uh, Brown Mark on bass, guitar, and vocals, Lisa Coleman on uh, keyboards, uh, piano, and vocals. Matt Dr. Fink on keyboards and vocals, and Bobby Z on drums. The Revolution, sort of their lineup, changed around a little bit before this, but I think this was the lineup that he stayed with for several years after this until they disbanded, right? Uh, This lineup kind of changed. The Revolution stayed, but a couple people dropped in and out over, over those few years. He was a primary songwriter, obviously Prince was, but this is the first time he really took musical ideas and concepts from other musicians, which kind of freeing them up to contribute. Yeah. Songwriting sessions lasted hours with input from everybody, which makes this record kind of unlike most of his other materials sound like a band record. Yeah. So do we want to talk about the album cover a little bit? Do you have any? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I got to be honest with you. I had a lot of trouble figuring out where this came from. It's, it's Prince dressed like you picture Prince to be dressed in a, a purple jacket with a white puffy shirt sticking out from underneath it, puffy sitting shirt. atop a puffy shirt, mm-hmm. sitting atop a, a giant purple motorcycle. 
in what appears to be a pretty steamy alleyway. And there's a, a person standing on the stairs behind him, staring down at him. Mm. And then it's uh, the front of the cover is flanked with these two white boxes with some flowers in them. Yeah. Couldn't it's, find any information on who took the pictures. Obviously, it's promotional. I guess we should mention, too, this is a soundtrack to the movie Purple Rain. Correct. Uh, and obviously, it's you know probably taken on set or something, but it's not uh, It's not really clear where it came from. Uh, it was uh, one of the photographers on the shoot was named Stuart Douglas Watson. Oh, there uh, you go. He also worked on Jimi Hendrix's record, Are You Experienced? So he had been around hmm. for a while. I would say that the cover, and I know it's promotional for the movie, is probably one of the most or maybe the only disappointing aspect of this record to me. It's legendary in its own right because it's instantly recognizable. But it is super plain. Right. And uh, it's not that memorable. I mean, you know it, but it's not like. It's not something iconic. Like, I don't it know. Is. It's, it is, but it, it isn't. Is, it's iconic, but only because the album got so big. Correct. If this was not like if you took the uh, Purple Rain, Prince of the Revolution off of this and it was just a picture of a guy on a motorcycle, you'd be like, wow, that's kind of a mediocre picture of a guy on a motorcycle. Pretty but, much because the know, whites on his shirt are blown out. And yeah. It's like, Neh. yeah, it's I don't know. It, it's it's always seemed kind of like bland. It doesn't feel like it fits with this album, but I guess it does kind of fit with the movie. Yeah, I would know? say, I mean, it, it, yeah, because it's a it's a movie promotional poster. Yeah. I mean, it does the work as as that. I assume you've seen the movie. Yes, right? many times. Yeah. Okay. I've only seen it like once several years ago. So. It's not very good. I, so I've been told. <laughs> I don't honestly don't remember it. And I kind of read the synopsis of it and I was like, huh, it's kind of a, a self, uh, kind of a true story, kind of not a true story. Semi-autobiographical. Semi-autobiographical. Although it made a ton of money. It had a $7.2 million budget and it made $72 million. Yeah, it did. A, it, yeah. So 10 times its budget in return. And it was number is, one at the same time the record was number yeah. one. Which I think may have happened one other time with an Elvis movie slash record. I remember reading that and I didn't write down the note for that. But, but I think you're right. I believe that did happen. But yeah, it's not very great, like legendary soundtrack, just yeah. forgettable movie. Well, it, in support of that, it won the Oscar for Best Original Song Score. Right. Which, by the way, if you look that up on uh, Wikipedia, there's a really funny note there because it says... Uh, uh, the film won the Oscar for the best original song score. It was the last film to do so, except all the films after this that won the award. Oh. <laughs> and it's it has to do with they changed the category around in the Oscars. Oh. So there are other films that have won this award since 1985. Or I was going to say that really cleared it up. Right. But it was it was very confusing to me. And it took a, a little bit of research to be like, oh, yeah, they changed some stuff around. That makes more sense. But, ah. Something else that I do want to mention before we get into the track, sure. track too is uh, it's always kind of nuts to me when you start thinking about this, that at the same time, Prince was making this album, one of the greatest albums of all time. He was making a movie, which he had never done before and was very involved in, uh, you know, the direction that the film was going in. Mm -hmm. He was producing another album called Apollonia 6. Uh, which is the band from the movie in Purple Rain and also um, a, a project of his started out as a project called Vanity, Vanity Six. Six yeah. uh, Vanity was his protege and longtime girlfriend. And we'll talk about her again in a few minutes. Uh, and also working with Morris Day in the time 
to produce the the album uh, Ice Cream Castle, which has probably their two biggest hits of all time on it. He was doing all of that in this same like year and a half, 18 month time frame. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And presumably at some point eating and sleeping a little bit, Mm. but probably not much. Mostly having sex, I think. And probably, oh yeah, I forgot he had to set set aside time to have sex. (laughs) I forgot about that. It probably did that more than he ate. Probably. I remember this. You just jogged a weird memory in my head. Okay. From several years ago, I was watching a TV show. uh, They were talking about uh, props. Like there was a prop house in Los Angeles where they had all these props uh, that they, and they had started renting them out to individual people instead of just movies. So where this is going, if you had a, if you're having a party or whatever, you could rent, you know, a whole bunch of old West props and have an old West party or a whole bunch of sci-fi props and have a sci-fi party. And the person interviewing the guy who ran the warehouse said, you know, well, who have you rented to? And he said, well, you know, I can't really tell you too many names, but uh, I can tell you that Prince rented some props from us for a party a few years ago, including the big tube. And then there's a picture. It looks like a like a, a tube that you would go into like cryostasis in. And it was this <laughs> big tube. And, and it was so funny. The lady said, well, what did he rent it for? And the guy said, I'm not sure, but I will say that we sterilized it after we got back. <laughs> Uh, for some reason that is, please do that is bored into my head. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Track by track. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Yeah. So, uh, opens with this. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun. Day or night. Does not fit with anything else on the album, but it is also an amazing opening. Most fan- <laughs> One of the most fantastic album all- openers of all time. Right? Just that that and that sermon style eulogy type thing yeah. going on, fantastic. I will be okay. So I'm going to be the first to admit that I really had no idea that the line in the chorus was "Let's look for the purple banana." <laughs> I I had no idea until I looked up the lyrics that those are the lyrics. It was one of those lyrics that you know you don't know, and you just kind of glide over and hope no one realizes that you don't know it. Just kind of like, mumble, 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 put us in the truck, let's go. Right? You can skip over it and you hope nobody pays attention to it. But I had no idea that's what he was saying. None. Yeah. This song has some of the weirdest. I had no idea that the the word is de-elevator and it's a reference to the devil. I, I, I only know that because I looked it up. Yeah. researching this i even have on here i had no idea like i that he was saying i thought he was saying the elevator me too and it was just kind of blending together because it was a song but the elevator like, okay yeah so this was the second single off the record mm-hmm. reached number one in the billboard pop charts mm-hmm. also topped the r&b chart and the dance chart uh, single was originally paired with a controversial b-side as was prince's mo <laughs> It would nor- normally attach a bona fide single with something a little more risque to get it some publicity, cause a stir, as was his usual practice. Single was attached to uh, Erotic City. Oh, yeah. For all of our younger listeners, 
<laughs> singles used to be released on vinyl on small records called 45s. That was the amount of revolutions the record would make in one minute on your record player. And they were smaller than your normal record, and they had one song on one side, the A side that was more popular, and then a B side single that was not as popular or more obscure or just different. It was so. usually something they were trying to promote, right? Because they were like, we got this really popular song. Let's exactly. throw something on the other side that we can boost a little bit. That someone will go home with because they bought Let's Go Crazy. Yeah. For That's just a little background, 45s for you younger people. Apparently, uh, you know, Prince famously based out of Minnesota. Uh, apparently, this song is now used by a lot of Minnesota sports teams mm-hmm. when uh, when they score a goal or a touchdown. Sports or balls? Sports ballings. <laughs> I'm the least the least qualified person to talk about this. <laughs> but uh, but no, you you are correct. The uh, the Minnesota Vikings used to use go. them after touchdowns. Uh, uh, Minnesota Twins would use them on home runs. See, uh, I even wrote all this down, but I feel weird reading it. The Minnesota Wild. I, used- I feel so unlike able to be <laughs> like an authority on anything sports related. So that's I'm okay. Glad you said that out loud. It's all right. So. <laughs> So that's a good segue. So I mentioned earlier that my two love affairs intertwined in the summer of Mm. 1984, baseball and music, and it culminated with this song. So 1984 was the last time my home team, the Detroit Tigers, won the World Series. It's baseball, by the way. Oh, It was a magical summer, right? A lot of games were broadcast on the local NBC affiliate. Sports broadcaster at the time, Al Ackerman, coined the term early in the season, bless you boys. And this became the rallying cry of the summer. You heard it everywhere. Saw it on bumper stickers, on TV. I even have some remnants of it hanging in my garage. Tigers got to the World Series, which was played against the San Diego Padres. Game five was the final game. I was watching home with my family. And when the final out was recorded, uh, they played a tape of the season highlights on cue, all set to this song, Let's Go Crazy, which had come out only a couple months previous. When that tape was over, they started to go to live footage of the celebration. And in true Detroit fashion, the celebration had turned radically violent. (laughs) Turf pulled up from the field. Seats pulled out. In front of the stadium was a cop car flipped over and on fire. I think I've seen a picture of that. Of course you have. And all of the looting. And this was the image that played out nationwide. Detroit on fire again. So for weeks on local TV, they speculated that somehow this song had incited some of it, which was ridiculous because the two things were happening simultaneously. But you know how news is. But this was the rep Detroit would maintain for a long time. So for years after this, whenever the national news was doing a report on Detroit for any reason, that's the footage they would use. And it would mark the city for decades. That's messed up. They kind of still do it to some degree. If any of our listeners are sports fans and you watch Monday Night Football and Detroit is on Monday Night Football, they will show some footage of the shittiest parts of town. They show New York. They show the skyline, the river, the Statue of Liberty. They don't show the slums or anything like that. Nope. They leave that for the Motor City. And it still pisses me off. That's kind of messed and up. I'm sorry. My, my Midwest is showing, but it's, it's, okay. it's really irritating. But it was all centered around this song, the Let's Go Crazy, because it, it was such a huge deal. But- that's where that song became completely ingrained in my mind was from watching that and knowing that those all those things kind of tie together 
and way to ruin my city's reputation. It, not that the, my city had a great reputation before because the riots in 67. And say, yeah, but still, it, it's crappy. I mean, that's a, another example of uh, people in power using, not using, oh, what am I trying to say here? They're picking the shittiest thing to represent an area. Like, you know, I'm not super familiar with Detroit. I'm sure it has some fantastic uh, people, beautiful places, you know, things like that. They could pick any of those to represent the city. And instead, they keep going back to the shitty footage yeah. of like its worst moment. Yeah, that's it's terrible. Messed up. Yep. And that that's, uh, that's a story I have about that. Yeah. There are a couple of uh, really great covers of that song, by the oh. way. Um, one by Incubus and one by Green Day. There are a number of covers, but those two really stand out. Incubus's cover is is a very good. I don't think I've heard either of those, so I heard. I heard. haven't heard either of these. I think you, you have, hate to listen you to have purple in your head. Purple. Heard. I do. We were saying the word purple before we started recording a lot. <laughs> There's uh, one other important thing about this song that I, go. I do want to mention real quick because it's super important to us and it's super important to uh, pretty much any internet user uh, for that matter. So in 2007, uh, there was a woman named Stephanie Lenz who uh, she's a writer and editor uh, from uh, Galatson, Pennsylvania. Uh, she made a home movie of her at the time, 13 month old son dancing around and, and acting wild, you know, and she said it to this song. Uh, it was like 29 seconds long and she posted it on YouTube and universal uh, came after they had her send her a DMCA takedown notice and said, you, you, you know, it's under copyright. And she said, no, it's not. It's under fair use. And they said, well, too bad. We're a big, powerful company. You got to take it down. And YouTube took it down. And she thankfully stood up to them. She said, no, this is crap. It's fair use. YouTube, you need to put this back up. And YouTube, instead of waiting uh, for two weeks, uh, they waited for six, trying to figure out whether Universal was going to try to sue Lens or not. Uh, and then they finally put it back up, which made them in violation of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, and Lens actually took Universal to court and won. Mm. Uh, the court basically said that, yes, it is fair use and uh, that Universal needs to a different court case in 2015 uh, affirmed that Universal was required to consider fair use before sending its initial takedown requests from now on. And for that matter, anybody, because obviously it's a law. Anybody sending a takedown request uh, needs to consider whether it's fair use or not. Now, uh, unfortunately, because a lot of this has become algorithmically handled now because there's so much content, it doesn't always work that way. They say, you know, oh, well, it might, it's definitely not fair use because we can hear X amount of the song and, you know, the content creators still have to go in and argue their case, which is unfortunate. But mm. It was an important step forward, and it means that people like you and me can actually still post clips under fair use. Uh, so, for example, the clip we posted at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of talking about this song, we can actually still use that. And we, you know, they may come at us with a, a takedown notice, uh, but we have actual legal recourse, and there's a precedent set. Yep, uh, that's super important for for everything that's going on today. I with, agree. You know, content creation. Sorry to get a little serious. No, there, that was but, uh, that's good. That's good. But good I, information. I remember reading about that back in like 2008 or nine when it was happening, and being like, "Wow, that's gonna that's either going to crush content creation or let it bloom." And thankfully, it has let it bloom. So I like it. There you go. Uh, take me with you. The letter U. U. Right. This uh, I love this song. Oh, it's such a great song. Uh, it's a duet with Apollonia Cotero um, from uh, Apollonia Six and. Obviously, Purple Rain, the movie, 
It's one of those songs that I forgot I knew as well as I did until I listened to it. And I knew all the words like right away. I am completely on the same wavelength with you there. I forget this song exists until every two or three years something happens and I hear it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a great duet. Right. It's amazing. And then it's like, eh, and then it fades away. And then a couple of years later, I'll hear it somewhere or I'll be like, oh, yeah, that still exists. And I'll go listen to it. So this uh, the song was originally intended for Apollonia 6's record, mm-hmm. but it ended up in the movie. So Prince had to make room for it on the record, which would necessitate necessitate changes to other songs on this record that we'll talk about soon. Oh, yeah. Because of the limited running time of an LP. But it's a... Uh, it's a super simple song that's really effective. I love this song. It's also got a rare, uh, kind of a, a rare for pop music drum solo, the beginning and end. Oh, yeah. And they also use finger cymbals, which are pretty rare, apparently. I, I thought about that. I'm like, I read that somewhere and I'm like, actually, I can name like three or four other songs that I know have finger cymbals in them. Oh. But, you know, it's still rare. Of all the songs that I know, and I can name four that have finger cymbals, I'd call that rare. <laughs> so I guess that's a true statement. Yeah. Uh, the Beautiful Ones mm-hmm. uh, was originally uh, Electric Intercourse on this album until Prince rearranged some stuff and got rid of it. <laughs> it could be, uh, it could very well be the most effective ballad in Prince's catalog. I would agree. It's a whopper. Yeah, it is. Kind of utilizes all of uh, Prince's strengths: uh, the soaring guitar leads, the plaintive vocals, and then the super screamy wailing vocals at the end. It sounds exhausting to play. Do you know, oh, go ahead. Go, no, you go. No, I was going to say, do you know who it was written for? Uh, no. So for years, a lot of people thought that it was written for a Revolution band member, Susanna Melvoin, mm-hmm. uh, in an attempt to woo her from her at the time boyfriend, uh, which is a situation that's uh, obviously mirrored in uh, the movie Purple Rain. That notion was also confirmed by uh, one of the recording engineers, Susan Rogers, for years. However... Uh, during an interview with Ebony Magazine in 2015, uh, Prince said that it was written for Vanity, uh, a.k.a. Denise Matthews, mm-hmm. uh, who was his one-time protege and girlfriend. Uh, she was a member. She was going to be in the movie. It wasn't going to be Apollonia 6. It was going to be Vanity 6. He was pushing her to start a band called Vanity 6, and they had already started to compose some music and and do a little bit of recording when she broke up with him and quit both the movie and the band. So. Hmm. He hired Apollonia or found Apollonia Catero to come in and take her place. Mm-hmm. So, so go ahead. Oh, as he, in the movie, when he's singing this song, uh, he's singing it to Apollonia. Who's but, hanging out with Morris Day. Who's hanging out with Morris Day. And then she runs off crying after she hears this song. And he's just laying on the stage all right. exhausted at that, oh. at that part. He's just spent. Yeah. It's an exhausting song. It is. But it's, a, uh, it's it's interesting to me that that lasted so long that it, he never came out with that until 2015. I mean, you know. About who it was about? Yeah. I mean, mm. 30 years. That's cool to me. That's a long time to hold on to it. It is. This is uh, it's one of three songs on the record that were written, produced, and performed by Prince alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, others being When Doves Cry and Darling Nikki. But you'd never know it by how full the song is and how he utilizes sound. So... Just take a second to talk about the Lynn drum machine that makes an appearance on this song and throughout the record as well as many other times throughout Prince's career. It's not the first drum machine. It was the first, though, to sample acoustic drums through its software. 
and became a staple of 80s pop music, making them legitimate tools for composition and recording. Prince, obviously, Michael Jackson, Human League, and Gary Newman, who we'll be covering in a judo chop later today. Oh, yeah. If you're interested in listening to that, sign up for Patreon at patreon.com forward slash audio judo and get some bonus content that includes our mini episodes called Judo Chops. <laughs> Um, anyway, all those guys used this drum machine exclusively, and it was definitely sound of the times, that Lynn drum machine. I just had an aside with the drum machine because I was fascinated nice. by it as a kid. That's I actually had a note in here about that drum machine as well. There, it's it's cool that he like picked it as a tool and was like, it, it extends through so much of his career. Like, yeah, he just kept using it. Yeah. I mean, I guess if it works, yeah, you stick with it. Uh, Computer Blue is mm. next. This is such a cool song. Uh, and it begins with that famous suggestive back and forth dialogue uh, between uh, Lisa and Wendy mm-hmm. from uh, the revolution. Wendy? Yes, Lisa? Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Yes, yes Lisa. Lisa. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a fun video that I was watching on YouTube when I was doing research for this. Uh, and I believe it is Lisa who is talking and she says, uh, you know, at the time they wrote this and they did it and they didn't really, it kind of had an understanding of what it was, but they didn't really like the implication didn't really hit them until years later. And they were like, Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those moments. Like, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, this is such a, a, a dense song and there was so much more to this right speaking of sound of the times that i had said that the lynn drum machine was the sound of the times this song is so far ahead of the times that it's ridiculous yeah basically forecasting and explaining in my opinion the first relationship between a human and a computer which seems pretty relevant now yeah i feel that that's what I feel it's about. I could it could be a metaphor, and I'm probably way off, but whatever. No, I would agree with you there. The uh, song was originally constructed as a 14 minute song. Uh, Prince then edited it to seven and a half minutes, and then it was when it was decided that "Take Me With You" was going into the movie and not on Apollonia Six's record. He then edited it even further down to this version, cutting along the way huge instrumental pieces, keyboard solo stuff like that. And it's a huge song, and some other versions of it do exist, but even if it, in its current form. The album form, it's amazing for what he's able to pack in there. Uh, the guitar solos, uh, feedback, all the things that he was doing are spectacular. One of my favorite things about the way Prince edits his songs together is the way he weaves live passages into recorded material. Uh, some of what you're hearing on any given song of his are live tracks or pieces of live tracks that he weaves into a final recorded mix. Yeah. So... That's uh go ahead. Has one of my favorite Prince guitar solos. It's this one right here. you have a chance to like matthew was just saying though go listen to there are some uh extended versions of this song floating around out on the internet go check them out it's uh they're great they're fascinating 
they just have so much there. This is the one on the album is very good. The extended versions take it to like a next level type of a song. It's like you listen to it and it's like, wow, this is still going. It's still this amazing. And it's not it's not like there's any lull. It's just amazing. I agree. I love that song and all of its forms. Yeah. Darling Nikki in an album full of fuck songs. <laughs> there's a self fuck song. <laughs> Uh, the song, at least in part, responsible for the formation of the PMRC. Oh, yeah. So it's a little song about female masturbation, S&M, and signing a waiver before you go to bed. Oh, so what? <laughs> so the this is the story that I was talking about with uh, Tipper Gore. Yes. So the story goes that Tipper Gore bought this album for her, 11, at the time, 11-year-old daughter. Um, and then heard her listening to this song and was absolutely appalled by it. And it caused her to go form the PRMC, the Parents Par- Music Resource Center, uh, along with uh, some uh, three other women named the Washington Wives. So if mm-hmm. you don't know, Tipper Gore is the wife of, uh, at the time, Senator and then later Vice President Al Gore. Uh, uh, Susan Baker was the wife of uh, the Treasury Treasury Secretary James Baker, uh, Pam Hauer, wife of Washington Realtor Raymond Hauer, and Sally Nevis, uh, wife of former Washington City Council Chairman John Nevis. They eventually grew to include 22 participants before shutting down in the mid to late 90s. Um, but they are the reason why some albums have that parental advisory explicit content sticker on the front of them. Correct. Which... I'm still very conflicted about because on the one hand, I think it's okay that you're warning people ahead of time that there's some explicit content on an album. On the other hand, I think that it's a, they went about it the wrong way. They went about it with this moral, you know, ah, we can, the, won't someone please think of the children? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Darling Lick Nikki is number one. Uh, they, they, they made a list called the Filthy the 15. Filthy 15. Do you have the whole list? No, I took a few of them out of the list. Okay. That made more sense yeah. to this talk is about. A, Darling Nikki's number one on that list. Uh, which ones did you want to talk about? Because we don't need to go over the whole list. Uh, you I, can look it up online. The ones I had were the ones that don't make any sense to me. Like, we're not going to take it by Twisted Sister. Yeah. Uh, Dress You Up by Madonna. In My House by Mary Jane Girls. And She Bop by Cindy Lauper. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? But so, so I have a question. I have a question that I did not look up the answer to. Oh, does Purple Rain still carry the parental Ooh. advisory sticker? Because it's so tame in comparison yeah. to what's being played now that there has to be some relativism, right? I mean, he mentions these things in the song, Female Masturbation. He, he says them, but he doesn't go into really great detail about what's happening. And it's kind of left to the imagination, which might be part of the problem that he it is left to the imagination. I mean, in the song, he doesn't even really say ass. He says behind. Yeah. He doesn't even say the word ass for Christ's sake. Well, that's that's for, for gosh darn sake. <laughs> that to me is something that's that always has existed about Prince is people say, you know, oh, his songs are so dirty and they're so filthy and they really aren't like he talks about sex and, and lovemaking and and he he always like skirts 23 very, positions in a one night stand yeah i mean very rarely does it become some incredibly explicit you know discussing a sex act or something and to me it's always funny to listen like to listen to this song and yeah he does he talks about female masturbation he talks about s&m he talks about bondage but it's not like and i don't know maybe it's because i'm 
you know, it's not 1984, but to me, it's so tame. Like you said, it's so. And that's what I'm asking. Like, do do they revisit what's considered I... offensive? Like a, a PG-13 movie now would be an R-rated movie in the 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just would be. So is there a relativism to those two things that if 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 it's. If something is considered offensive now, should should there be a second most offensive part? Or this is mm. kind of offensive, might want to consider like a PG-13 as opposed to an R. Like I'm going to say they probably don't. I, I don't know if it's the RIAA that handles that now or not. Yeah. I'm but, just curious. I didn't look it up. That, that question just occurred to me as I was yeah. reading my own notes going, well, why would... My guess would be the artist would have to bring it up. Mm. They would probably That'll have be a to little take difficult it. now. Yeah, that would be a little difficult now. Maybe the the trust of the artist could bring it up. Ah. But uh, my guess would be that if something is rated like that, that you would only the only way it would ever change is for someone to bring it up, and or maybe take legal action and go and say, "Hey, we want this sticker off of there based on current standards." Hmm. Yeah, I would say it's the same with movies too. If the MPAA rates a movie, you know, R, the only way that's ever going to change is for the owner of the movie to go back and say, hey, we want this re-rated. What if it's a re-release? Like, say, an expanded edition? Does it carry the same? Uh, I know that if it's like a director's cut and yeah. it's straight to DVD or, or I guess, Blu-ray. Then it's unrated. And most of the time, it's unrated. Hmm. Um, I just, I'm just curious about that now. If anybody has any answers for us, uh, info at audiojudo.com, yeah. let me know. I have a huge sideline, but I'll talk to you about it later. Oh. What? You know what? Let's do it. Go watch the movie. Uh, This film is not yet rated. It's a documentary film. It's about an hour and a half long. Uh, It is a fascinating look into the way, uh, obviously this is about movies, not music, but it's the way the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America, rates films. And it is bogus. It's ridiculous. It's the dumbest. Like It's all done on- basically people's opinions they have a test audience sure who watches a movie and then they say oh well this part was violent and this part was sexual and this part was whatever uh based on the time code of the film and those people are not supposed to have those jobs for more than two years at a time and they're not supposed to be related to the film industry at all and spoiler alert all of those people have had those jobs more than two years and almost all of them are like uh related in some way to the film industry like husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and who would have guessed? Right. Uh, yeah. So. Interesting. I, I will. Uh, what's it called again? This film is not yet rated. Okay. I think it used to be on Netflix. I don't know if it still is or not, but I'm, I'm sure it's floating around somewhere. So anyway, Darling Nikki, the song uh, itself was one of three that I mentioned uh, before as being completely composed, produced, and performed mm-hmm. by Prince himself, although it has a live feel to it. Um, at the end of the song, there's some backwards singing. Yes. Oh, oh, the humanity. Hail Satan, Lord and master of the planet. (laughs) Played forward. The text was this. Hello, how are you? Fine, fine, because I know the Lord is coming soon. Coming, coming soon. Disgusting. (laughs) No wonder there's such outrage. Oh, my gosh. It's just, ugh. I'm disgusted. <laughs> that is filthy and perverse. I can't even handle it. So Coming then, soon, the Lord. <laughs> no. In theaters everywhere. So when doves cry. Oh. No baseline. That is the most standout thing. This is 
by far one of Prince's most popular songs. Yes. And it has no bass line. It sounds like this. It is such a, like, I, it never occurred to me that it did not have a baseline until I was re- researching for this. And I was like, oh my God, that's why it sounds so uni- unique. And it leaves you with a sort of, there's a hole there that you don't realize it. You don't realize when you're listening to it, that it's not there until you actively start to realize that it's not there. And you're like, oh, there is kind of a hole there, but it's, it works without it. It works really well without it. I don't, you don't really notice it. No, and it was uh, apparently they did record a baseline for it, and apparently when they play it live, they will sometimes add that back in, hmm. or I guess they don't play it live anymore. But when they were playing it live, they would sometimes play the bass track to this. But uh, it, say yeah. <laughs> top selling single of nineteen eighty four. Yes, number fifty two on Rolling Stone's top five hundred songs of all time, included on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's list of songs that helped shape rock and roll. Yeah. And the 29 most celebrated song in popular music history. Wow. So I would say it's a pretty important song. Was uh, certified, the single was certified three times platinum by the RIAA. And this was before, apparently in 1989, they lowered the standards for that. Mm-hmm. So this was before that. So it's, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and following Prince's death in 2016, the song recharted on the Billboard Hot 100 at number eight. Uh, its first appearance in the top 10 since September 1st, 1984. So it's a song like, unlike any other that he wrote. So yeah. while making the movie, Prince was challenged by the director of the movie, Albert Magnoli, to write a song for a particular section of the film. The following day, Prince came to him with two songs, this being one of them, supposedly written about his affair with Susan Moonsey, one of his many protégés. Next day kyle yeah. we come back to this over and over but the ability to leave for a day and write a song of such value and beauty in one day <laughs> still amazes me and he wrote two yeah i want to know what the other song was because i saw that same story in a lot of different places and it kept saying you know he went away and wrote two songs and then this was one of them and i want to know what the other song was like the other song like some crap yeah it, <laughs> It was just like, oh, this one's crap. Chronicle, throw away. It's, it'll resurface on one of the many posthumous records oh, of Prince's. We'll get to that when we get done with this. Yeah. But uh, that to me is very sad. So in true Prince fashion, the music video was deemed too sexually explicit for MTV. So naughty. Which made people want to see it even more. Of course. All that- it was was Prince. He's writhing around in a bathtub with some doves. Big deal. To me, that is like the that is Prince's MO for a lot of stuff. Is the second somebody says that's too sexual or that's disgusting, his sales shoot through the roof. Yeah. <laughs> and he gets in a bath. That music video is disgusting. Oh, well, I gotta see that now. I mean, if everybody's saying it's gross, I gotta see it. Well, now everybody make, has to see make it. Make a judgment for myself. Uh, there are also uh, countless covers of this song yes. through the years. My favorite, though, is by uh, Andy DeFranco, which is a freaking phenomenal version mm, of this song. It's uh, it's very, very good. I recommend that. Hmm. I have to check that out. I would die for you. Four. Number four, 
letter U. U. I, and I'm not saying that I would die for you, Matthew. No. I mean, in the right situation, maybe. But oh. well, uh, it nice. is the name of the next track on this. So this song opened up a whole can of worms for me <laughs> whilst researching. I'm not sure how I feel about it now because of things I've read that I guess I don't see. Hmm. First of all, I absolutely love this song. It was one of my favorites from the record. Always has been. Uh, it was the last single from the record, top 10 hit. Um, I guess where I get lost is how much people say this evokes Christianity and Christ's message in the song and that Prince was making himself out to be a modern day Messiah. Yeah. Yes. While I understand the lyrics say almost exactly that, are we supposed to take that at face value? Was he not speaking to a lover, just claiming to be her everything, her God, if you will? Is he really proselytizing here? I don't see it. Uh, I'm not sure I really know uh, the truth, but I have a tough time getting my arms around some of the interpretations. Like this one. Someone, someone wrote this. Like... Most of the Purple Rain album, Prince makes himself synonymous with the Messiah. He believed in God long before realizing he was a Jehovah's Witness in 2001, and he believed in spreading his message. That's one of the themes of I Would Die For You. Prince was willing to die, quote-unquote die, or surrender himself to his God, allowing him, him to use the Purple One as a messenger. Thus, he looked at himself as a human incarnate of God. So I guess I missed that when I was 12, <laughs> but I'm not really seeing it now at 47 either. Um, I would die for you. Uh, in my oversimplified view of the world, just means that I would do anything for you. And I guess I just get lost a little bit. To me, I think that this is very much one of those songs that if you don't know Prince and you don't know the context of his life and a lot of his other music, you would absolutely interpret this as Prince saying, I'm Jesus. If you understand in context who he is, the way that he talks about things, the way that he talks about, uh, you know, uh, spirituality and religion and his beliefs. And on top of that, the way that it fits into this album, I absolutely think that it is like you just said, it is more about him saying to a lover, I want to be your everything. I want to be, the same way that you would picture a God or, or a Messiah or whatever to you. And it's very much, I think that it's intentionally left open for interpretation. I think that he did that on purpose. He I intentionally, hope so. intentionally wrote the lyrics in such a way that we can interpret it one way. Everyone, well, not everyone, other people can interpret it a different way. I mean, he did that a few times with, um, uh, can't remember the name of the song now from the album right after this i'll look it up later and okay. i'll put it in the show notes how about that? sign of the times uh it's not the song sign of the sign of the times is the next album right uh i can't remember the name of the song now i'll have to look it up okay. i'm sorry it's not it's escaping my brain right now but uh yeah other interesting thing about these last three tracks on here these were all court recorded live as part of the uh just in a, a club in minneapolis basically um, and then he went through, like you were saying earlier, and did a lot of re-recording and mixed the live instrumentations versus the studio instrumentations. Uh, and it sounds great. It sounds yeah amazing. I didn't write any more about that song because I was too upset. That's okay. Baby, I'm a Star is the next song. 
I abs- another song I absolutely love, and yeah. I, I guess I just love all the dance numbers. I guess this yeah. one you is, know uh, me. Yeah, this one is an older song. This was originally uh, demoed by Prince in December 1981, uh, and then reused here because it fit really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, this song has the uh, second instance of backmasking on this record. Yes, darling Nikki being the first. This is what it says this time. Like, what the fuck do they know? All their taste is in their mouth. Really, what the fuck do they know? Come on, baby. Let's go crazy. (laughs) Clearly, Wendy or Lisa are not happy with the critics of their music. Clearly. Seems pretty cut and dry and nothing remotely devilish, which I thought was the only reason you ever use backmasking. I I could not find a reference to this, but I feel like... That was probably a line from the movie, mm. and I obviously I didn't rewatch the movie, unfortunately, uh, so I didn't really pay attention to see if it's in there or not. I feel like though that is a line from the movie that he used in the the album. I would say that you're probably correct. Yeah, good song though. I enjoy it. Yeah, another it's a, it's dancing a, number. It's I a like good it. lead in to Purple Rain. Last song on this album. I like I said earlier, it is. Every time I hear this song, I have to like stop and listen to it. I've been late for work because of this song because <laughs> it came on right as I was pulling into a parking lot. And I'm like, shit, I got to listen to it. Right. It is quite simply one of the most fantastic songs ever written, uh, merging gospel, pop, rock, orchestral, and one of the greatest visuals painted in a song for your mind to envision the ethereal concept of purple rain. It's mesmerizing. Uh, listening to this song is very impactful. And for me, it's the seat of one of my biggest regrets musically. Ooh. Um, of all the hundreds of concerts I've been to over the years, I never got to see Prince live. Um, and I always figured I would have time. And yeah. then his time ran out. Um, just seeing him perform this on TV was always inspiring, but I knew it didn't capture the feeling oh. of seeing it live. I, and that sucks. One of the best performances, I think, Possibly live performances of all time. Super Bowl, uh, what was it? XLI in 2007. I don't remember what number that is. Uh, He did the halftime show, and it's a medley of a lot of his songs. And there's a great, um, I think it's produced by NFL Films. It's a little behind the scenes. 41, by the way. 41, thank you. Uh, It's a great little behind the scenes documentary about producing this halftime show. And they talk about how they woke up that morning, and it was just this downpour in Miami. And it was just raining and they went to Prince and they're like, so what do we need to do to make this okay for you? And he was like, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and he's literally, they, you know, obviously it's a halftime show, so it's all rushed. They they build this stage that is in the Prince symbol mm. out on the field and it's him. He pops up out of the stage and does a medley of all his songs, not all, but several of his songs. He's walking around in heels on a clearly slick, reflective, very wet surface, yeah. doesn't slip once, plays these songs like perfectly, ad-libs a little bit, yelling out to the crowd and stuff. There's these dancers in like eight-inch you know, pin heels dancing around behind him and stuff. And then he gets to Purple Rain, and right as he does, they turn on all these purple lights, and the rain, like on cue, the rain intensifies and it starts with these huge droplets of rain. So they show up on the TV cameras and they're purple. And it yeah. is, it is, mwah. I can't think of another way to describe it. Did you it watch is, it? Were you, oh, what? Cause I watched, I you watched, probably weren't watching when it happened. I actually used to watch the Super Bowl. Oh, okay. 
for the commercials and the halftime show. You son of a bitch. <laughs> like I would get, I would go somewhere the next day and everybody would be like, did you see the Super Bowl? I'm like, yeah, I couldn't tell you who won, but did you see that uh, uh, commercial with the, the puppy dog? And the, did you see the Budweiser horses? They were great. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry, America. I'm sorry, planet Earth. Planet Earth. me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this, this song is just, uh, here's the little sample. It's, uh, here, listen to this. So great. Go on for a while there. Yeah. So it reached number two on the charts. Uh, it is on every best of list imaginable. Yeah. Uh, it was also the last song he performed live. You know why it reached number two on the charts? Uh, I believe it's Careless Whisper. No? Wake me up oh. before you go. I go. had the right band. Oh. He had the, he had the right band. Wrong song. Uh, sadly, uh, beaten out by uh, Wham. Wham. Yeah, so it was the last song that he performed live yeah. uh, just a week before he passed, 2016. <sighs> so sad. I uh, originally wrote this song as a country song for Stevie Nicks. <laughs> I First so, of all, wait, what? I so want to hear that I, version of the that's song. That's exactly what I said. That's what I wrote down. I'm like, I would love to hear that version. But A, why did you write it as a country song? B, why did you write it as a country song for Stevie Nicks, who's <laughs> not a country artist? That's the most Prince thing ever. He's like, you know who would be great with a country song is Stevie, Stevie Nicks. Nicks. Let me write one for her. I send it, but she passed because it was just too big she for was, her. She was scared of it. Yeah. The quote that I wrote down was, according to Nicks, she received a 10-minute instrumental version of the song from Prince with a request to write the lyrics, but felt overwhelmed. She said, I listened to it, and I just got scared. I called him back and said, I can't do it. I wish I could. It's too much for me. Too much. Too much. I, you know, and there is a ton of differing viewpoints, even from Prince himself, what Purple Rain actually means. He's he's he contradicted himself so many times. But to me, it's completely irrelevant. Yeah, there's this is one of those songs that you just let play and listen to. Uh, I don't have to contemplate what it's about because it stands as a work of art that requires no further breakdown. I would agree. And it's just amazing. There are two things that I kind of want to close with. Please here. do. So to me, one of the signs of a fantastic artist is when they can absolutely put other artists in awe of them. If you go watch the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they do their induction ceremonies every year, uh, they have a concert usually to, to induct the people into the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they did George Harrison. I believe it was in 2007 or 2008. 
uh, I'm sorry, 2004. I should have written down the year and I did not. That's it okay. was an year before 2010. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, George Harrison's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And there are these just this amazing lineup of artists in the audience and on stage playing While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And right at the end of it, Prince has been over in a shadow on the side of the stage. You can see him playing along with everybody else, but he's like fully in shadow. And you can just see the silhouette of a, a cowboy hat and a huge collar in some shots. And right towards the end, he comes out to take a solo and just fucking jaw dropping. People <laughs> in the audience are just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and everyone on stage kind of like backs up. And there's, I don't remember who it is that's playing guitar behind where Prince starts standing. They actually move. They're like, they I got to I gotta see this from the front and I don't want to be in the back of this shot. The, the guy literally steps to the side to get the hell out of the way of Prince. It is just, it's a mind blowing performance and it's like seven minutes long and it, it, it's great. I'll put a link in the but show. But why a cowboy hat, Kyle? I don't know. It just really fit. It's a bright red cowboy hat and oh, a bright well red that's... suit, too. Oh, he's so, not wearing purple? He's not wearing purple, which was weird. But I think it was some kind of a, a, a homage. Homage. <laughs> For me, the other thing, um, Miles Davis, arguably one of the greatest musicians of the 20th century. Mm. Um, he took a very long hiatus. Uh, where he was dealing with his own addiction problems, where he was fed up with music. He didn't play for a long time. And in the early 80s, he started coming back. He said, you know, I want to get back into music. I want to now. Unfortunately, the result of that is an album called Doobop, which is, yeah, double thumbs down. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a great album, but he was trying. He was expanding himself musically. He was coming up with new stuff. Yeah. And Prince was somebody that he latched onto really early on in the 80s. Um, he started listening to Prince. He started getting to, in touch with Prince. They actually talked about going out on a double concert tour together once Miles, once Miles Davis had some new material. Oof. But uh, to close this out, uh, this is what Miles Davis uh, in uh, Miles, the autobiography, said about Prince. He said, uh, his shit was the most exciting music I was hearing in 1982. Here was someone who was doing something different, so I decided to keep an eye on him. If Miles but Davis says that. That's pretty fucking important. It is, and it's a it's a big deal. Uh, Prince just blurred lines and yeah. music and brought everyone together. And there, it wasn't like he wasn't playing black music or white music. He was playing music that everyone could appreciate. I think it's a big that's a big statement. Yeah. Uh, even now, we still get siloed up and listen to this style of music or that style of music as as uh, being particular. And he didn't, he just made really great music that was accessible to everybody. Yeah. And this one, Purple Rain, yeah. just stands uh, all tests as being one of the best records uh, ever created. Indeed. So that's Purple Rain. That's Purple Rain. So uh, let us know what you think about Purple Rain. Uh, go give it a listen and then uh, let us know. You can email us info at audiojudo.com, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo. Twitter is at Audio Judo. Instagram is at Audio Judo. Uh, you can check out our website uh, for merch or if you want to support us on Patreon. Uh, it's as little as $3 a month, I believe. Correct. Uh, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash Audio Judo or audiojudo.com and you can click on the link from there. We've also got a merch store now available. So if you want to wear a t-shirt that says Audio Judo and support us, you can do that. We're also now part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, there are a whole bunch of music related and music adjacent podcasts on there so you can go check them out uh it's pantheonpodcasts.com 
so you can find something else to listen to when you're not listening to us. Uh, Until next time, everybody, take care. Bye-bye. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.